consistently come back to who is Jesus, what has he done, what does that mean for us, and that's kind of the heart behind this series. But like I said, week 35 is kind of wild, so uh, we are going to be in John chapter 11 this morning, so if you have your Bible, you can grab that. If you don't have your Bible and you prefer the smartphone, you can do that as well. There'll be words on the screen for you. Uh, While you're flipping there, how many of you enjoy going to the dentist? Wow, a couple people, that's amazing. You guys are the ones that uh, must brush regularly, floss every day. Um, I'm not going to lie, like, I've had some poor experiences at the dentist, Um, and nothing too crazy, nothing too traumatic, but like, something as simple as like, do you know when they take the x-ray, they put that, why does it have to hurt so bad? They put the, the thing that you bite down on, do you guys know what I'm talking about? This piece of plastic or something, and for whatever reason, they haven't, no one's developed it to the point where it doesn't just dig into your gums and stab your gums to the point where you're like, I don't want to bite down on this. It really hurts. And, and then when you stop biting down with so much pressure, you know, the, 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 the nice lady who's there, she's like, hey, you need to bite down on this. And I'm like, I don't want my mouth to bleed. It hurts. Like the dentist can just be kind of weird and kind of awkward. And, but there's this kind of stereotype with the dentist, right? Where it's like, I don't want to go. Why? We just, we, just, we just talked about one. One, because it, it hurts. We don't want to go because it hurts. What else? Give it to me, Jenna. They talk to you while your hand's in your mouth. It's uncomfortable. Thank you. Yes. you like, this is going to cost me a fortune. So I'm going to willingly go someplace where, regardless of how nice the people are, I'm going to go someplace and they're going to hurt me. They're going to put me in uncomfortable positions and they're going to take a lot of my money. <laughs> Some of you raised your hand. You enjoy going to the dentist. That's fine. Uh, no. <clears throat> I share that because, one, I'm that person. Some of you, it's the doctor. It's not the dentist, you know? But I'm that person, and I'm like, I don't want to go. But here's the thing. Not going doesn't do me any good either, Right? Not going is not going to fix anything that's happening in here. Like, if you have any problems dentally, like avoiding the pain, avoiding them taking your money, the more you avoid going, the more it's going to hurt in the long run. And frankly, the more money it's going to cost. I remember my dad growing up, I remember him like, like being very, uh, very serious about like taking care of your teeth. Like, those things are diamonds. Like, do not, they're going to cost me, you take care of them. You know what I mean? And I remember that stuck with me because again, it's, if, if, you, if you delay the work that you need done, it's only going to hurt more and it's only going to cost more. And it got me thinking about this idea of the dentist. And I know it's a stereotype. If you're a dentist in the room, God bless you. I'm not trying to pick on you. <laughs> Don't want anybody to feel, feel uh, uh, called out or anything. You, you, so you'll see where I'm going in just a second. This is an illustration for a point. But like, I've been thinking about this idea of like, why do we avoid going to the dentist? We avoid going to the dentist because we don't want to get hurt. It's going to cost us so much money. But not going, like I said, is just, it's unwise because it's going to hurt more in the long run. It's going to cost more in the long run. And it got me thinking about this idea of like, I think it's because we, we have a twisted view of the dentist. We view the dentist as a threat. But in reality, the dentist can be a blessing. But there's this stigma. We view it as a threat. And, and the story we're going to read in John chapter 11, it's this story about these people and they view Jesus that way. They view Jesus as a threat, and and they were missing out on the blessing. So, that being said, I'm going to pray for us before we jump in. Will you pray with me? Uh, Father, 
I'm just so aware um, of how much I need you in every area of my life. I think when I stop, when I slow down enough, I'm just so keenly aware that I can do nothing apart from you, Jesus, but that your grace and your love is available to me at all times. That's my prayer for us this morning, um, that we wouldn't be people who miss you, like miss out on seeing you, miss out on experiencing you, miss, miss out on all the things that you have for us. So Holy Spirit, would you guide our time? Would you right now just begin to, pe- begin to like kind of open up each of our hearts? I, I ask you, Holy Spirit, to prep our hearts in this moment. Sometimes you say things that at first glance can be, can just seem difficult to hear. But oftentimes, dare I say, every, actually, I know, every time. If your word is true, every time it's for our good. So would you prep our hearts right now so that we can experience the freedom that you have for us. We love you, Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Okay, so just a few verses, not a few, uh, about a dozen verses or so uh, this morning. John chapter 11, we're going to finish off this chapter. Um, and just to kind of bring you up to speed, we're going to start in verse 45. If you were with us last week, Jesus did just, he probably did his most scandalously spectacular miracle last week. He rose a guy from the dead. Like he, he literally, his friend Lazarus had died. He was dead in a tomb for four days. And Jesus basically said, Lazarus, come out of the tomb. And he came out of the tomb. When the whole like mummy garb and the whole thing. Okay, so he just did something spectacular. People are losing their minds in a good way. This guy, Jesus, words getting out, okay? Pick up here in verse 45, chapter 11 of John. Here we go. Therefore, because of what he just did about raising Lazarus from the dead, many of the Jews who came to Mary, that's Lazarus' sister, and saw what he did, what Jesus did about raising him, saw what he did, believed in him. So a bunch of Jews now believe in him. Verse 46, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done about raising Lazarus from the dead. Verse 47, so the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin and were saying, what are we gonna do? since this man is doing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Okay, really quickly, the Sanhedrin, what is that? What's the Sanhedrin? The Sanhedrin was like the highest ruling body for the Jews. Okay, so it consisted of 70 men and these 70 men, um, they were presided over by the high priest. So this is like a ruling, governing body of the Jews. You with me? That's Sanhedrin. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 49. So they come together. They're like, what are we going to do about this guy, Jesus? If we let him continue on like this, if we let him keep going like this, everyone's going to believe in him. And then the Romans are going to come. And what does it say? They're going to come and take away both our place and our nation. Okay, verse 49. One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. He's talking to the Sanhedrin. You know nothing at all you're not considering that it is to your advantage that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. He did, not, he did not say this on his own, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to unite the scattered children of God. So from that day on, they plotted to kill him. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but departed from there to the countryside near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And he stayed there with his disciples. It says something really quickly here. It says something 
like Caiaphas, he, he, he prophesies. So he's essentially, you can, if you know the story and you can already read through the lines, like he's anti-Jesus, but he prophesies about something. Caiaphas, he speaks more truth here than he realizes. His agenda is something different than what God's agenda is with Jesus. Um, you know what, sometimes this happened to me in, in like when I was growing up in school, someone would rhyme on the playground and then someone would be like, oh, he was a poet and he didn't know it. You guys know what I'm talking about? Someone rhyme. I love you, Dakota. So much. But you know, that's that silly saying, oh, he's a poet and he didn't know it. Silly analogy, but Caiaphas, he prophesied and he didn't even know it. He didn't even know it. He actually, he says here what would end up happening. Absolutely. But the implications of Jesus' death would be much more than saving the Jews politically. Because that's where he's coming from. He's part of, he leads the Sanhedrin. He's coming strictly politics. Let's have the Romans kill Jesus so they don't take us out. He's not thinking things from the perspective of heaven. Okay? So really quick caution to you. Really quick caution. You can say things that are true while at the same time dishonoring God. Let's keep going. Verse 55. The Jewish, the Jewish Passover was near and many went up to Jerusalem from the country to purify themselves before the Passover. You guys know the Passover, right? It's the, it's the festival celebrating how, you know, Moses, the Exodus story, how, how God leads the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, you know, parting of the Red Sea, the whole thing. How did he get them out of there? They, they, they put the blood of the lamb over the doorposts, right? And then the, the angel of death would come over, and if you had the blood of the lamb covering your household, like the, the angel of death passed over you, which means it just took out the firstborn of the Egyptians, freaked Pharaoh out, kind of the last straw, and he said, okay, go ahead, get out of here. It freed God's people. So they're, they're celebrating this Passover thing, right? <clears throat> Verse 56, they were looking for Jesus, okay? And asking one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? He won't come to the festival, will he? So, so they're, they're all coming to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, one of the biggest festivals. You've got to, if you're journeying with us, you see how often the Jewish people partied and celebrated God's faithfulness, like all the time. It's awesome, okay? So they're coming to Jerusalem, they're celebrating the Passover, and they're like, what do you think? Won't he come to the festival? Like, will he? They're talking about Jesus. Uh, one of the things that you kind of miss in the English translation from Greek, right, because it was originally written in Greek, the way that this was originally written in Greek, it indicates a, poser, a positive answer to that question is expected. So it's sort of like, it'd be like if we were like, Jesus is coming to the festival, right? Like he's coming, isn't he? Like with this expectation that he is. It's almost like this, they're anticipating the arrival of Jesus. They've heard what he's done. They've heard about his miracles. They've heard about him raising people from the dead. He's gonna be here, right? Like I wanna see this guy, Jesus. It's like if you go to Coachella and you're like, Paul McCartney's gonna be here, right? Or like Lady Gaga's gonna be here, right? Like I really wanna see them. It's that kind of a vibe, okay? But Jesus is way cooler than Paul McCartney and Lady Gaga. <clears throat> so, all the people anticipating Jesus' appearance. Verse uh, 57, we're going to finish it off here. The chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it so they could arrest him. Because remember, that at this point, they've resolved to kill Jesus. So, I want to focus on just a few things that we see in this passage this morning, okay? Look back at verse 47 with me. Verse 47, so the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin, you know what that is, 
and we're saying, what are we going to do since this man is doing many signs? Listen to this. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Go on like what? Jesus was living this spectacular life. All these signs, all these wonders, all these miracles. But ultimately what Jesus is doing is he's living a submitted life. He's submitting to the Father's will. Saying things like, I don't say or do anything that the Father's not say or doing. I only say and do what the Father does. He's living this fully submitted life to the Father. He's taking his marching orders from God the Father, okay? And he's doing things empowered by the Spirit of God. So he's submitted to the Father. The Father's kind of giving him directions. And then he's actually being able, he's walking out and living out those directions, those instructions, those assignments with the fuel, with the power of the Spirit of God. Are you with me? It's this beautiful relationship of the Trinity, right? And what's the result? He's, he's living radically. He's radically loving people. Like even the outcasts of society. Even the people that nobody loved. The prostitutes, the tax collectors, the lepers, the outcasts. So he's radically loving people. Why? The Father told him to and the Spirit empowered him. You with me? What else? He's being so compassionate. People that have like radically sinned against God. Newsflash really quick. Jesus is God. So people that have radically sinned and rejected God, he meets with compassion. He saw them with sheep, as sheep without a shepherd and he had compassion for them. He's doing all these amazing miracles like we just talked about the resurrection of Lazarus, right? He's healing the blind, all kind of other healings, casting demons out of people. And not just, he's not just doing the miracles that are, like, that are like impressive on the outside, you know, like raising someone from the dead or giving sight to the blind. Like he's transforming people on the inside. Like I look around the room right now and I know so many of your stories and you know mine. Let's never be people who take for granted the miraculous work that God does internally in us. Like I was thinking about the other day, and I don't want to make this about me, but like if you ever, if you ever feel like God, like your relationship with God is stale, just take like 30 minutes, and it might sound like a lot for you, but it won't be, and just start to examine your life story. Like I think about the things that I said and things that I did before I knew Jesus. I think about my resume, the whole, not just the good stuff, the bad stuff. I think about it all and I go, oh my gosh, he's done so much in me. I have a long way to go. <laughs> you guys know that. I have a long way to go, but like I can see where he's, what he's done in my life. I can see the miraculous transformation that he's done in me. I can see how my desires, the things that I desperately want, are so different than they used to be. I used to want, like, to, I, I used to want to do anything I could to get people to approve of me. I wanted to use them for approval and now I genuinely find myself, not exclusively, but I genuinely find myself going, oh, I really just want to love this person. I didn't figure out how to do that. That's a, that's a miraculous work of God in my life. And so I look around the room, like I said, in so many stories of God's faithfulness and his care and his love. Jesus is, he's performing miracles, not just externally, but internally. So many of these characters that we read in the New Testament, people, that are, their lives are radically transformed through encounters with Jesus. He's being sacrificially generous. Good God, he's, he's being incredibly gracious. How? 
marching orders from the Father, submitted to him. He gets his assignments. He gets his direction day by day, moment by moment. And then the Spirit of God empowering him to actually do them. Um, have you guys ever seen this cartoon called Home? Some of your parents maybe have. There's, okay, there's this joke. You guys know knock-knock jokes? There's this joke that's in that movie that my kids love. Okay, some of you know where I'm going with this, but don't ruin it for the rest of the crew, okay? So we're going to play a little game here. We're going to play the knock-knock joke game. I'm going to tell you a knock-knock joke. You ready? You guys can do this one voice. Okay, hold on, take a drink of water. Okay. Knock-knock. Interrupting cow. Moo! They tell that silly joke all the time. And it's cute and whatever, but it bothers me every time. You want to know why? Because they interrupt me every time. Even when I know when it's coming. I've heard it a thousand times. They interrupt me. Nobody likes being interrupted. You don't like being interrupted. You don't. Um, I remember, when, uh, I see, we have several teachers at the room, which I love. Uh, I remember when I was in junior high, I was in this class, and I'm not going to use names, uh, but I was in this class, and it was chaos. Maybe 25, 30 kids. Um, it was a math class, too. 25, 30 kids in this class, and every single day, the teacher's trying to teach, and the, like 80% of the class is consistently interrupting. Spit wads, paper, airplanes, uh, people shouting, people talking, people interrupting. And she tried the best she could, but they just kept interrupting her. It was insane. Like, and I remember thinking, like, all these kids are going to fail math if they don't listen to her words. Like, if they don't, and when I say these kids, like, I was just as bad, so I'm trying, I'm not, like, I'm not the, yeah, I'm not the, I don't want to be, enough of that. I was just as guilty, okay? Um, although one time, she put me, she made me sit in the hallway for throwing spit wads that I didn't throw. I had thrown them two days prior, but I didn't throw them that day, right? If you're uh, kids, uh, Jax, do not throw spit wads in class, dude. Okay, it's not a good idea. Uh, but either way, interrupting, right? If the teacher can just get, if she's not interrupted, she can actually follow through with her agenda to instruct these kids. I'm sure she didn't appreciate being interrupted with us last week. Last week, we talked about God's agenda. The teacher's agenda is to instruct. God's agenda, we talked about last week, is to replace unbelief with, a, with belief. That's his agenda. And in the same way, with, with, my, with my junior high math teacher, if she's not interrupted, she's able to carry out her agenda of instructing kids in math. Same thing is true of God. God's agenda to replace unbelief with belief. God's agenda to bring his kingdom, essentially, his ruling, his reigning, his way. He's the king. If God's not interrupted, what can happen? His agenda would actually get carried out. But so oftentimes, I find myself getting in the way, like interrupting God's work. Because here's the thing. We are either involved in God's work or interrupting it. Like, think about this for a second. These, these Pharisees. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe. Are you seeing where I'm going with this? 
if we don't interrupt his work, if we don't stop it, everyone's going to believe. We're e- we, the people of God, we're either involved in God's work or we're interrupting it. And what's the outcome? His kingdom coming. All things renewed. People being fully convinced and filled with faith that God's real, he loves them, and he has a purpose for their life, and they're walking into it. They're submitted to the Father, and they're empowered to obey that direction in the Spirit. You with me in this? And when I talk about this idea of like, we're either involved in God's work or we're interrupting God's work, this applies to every single area of our life because God cares about everything. Every single area, not just ministry, not just Sunday morning at a church gathering, not just with your gospel community set aside time, but every single area of your life. He's at work in everything. Everything matters. So that, that means your relationships, all of them. Family, romance, if you're married, your spouse, your kids, your parenting, all of it. And in your relationships, how you respond to people, especially when they're not cool, how you interact with them, how you treat them, the things that you say to them. We are either involved in God's work or interrupting it. And it's not just our relationships, it's everything, right? He's given us, he's given us this life. We're stewards. We're stewards of the resources that he gives us. Time is the most valuable resource you have. How you spend that time. We're either involved in God's work, or we're interrupting it. One that the church doesn't like to talk about, but I actually don't have a problem with it at all, is money. This is where the pin drops in the room, because we live in Southern California. Our money, the money that God graciously entrusts to us, to steward. Um, it was interesting, we, we live in Temecula, many of us. Many of you live in different parts of the valley. Um, this is kind of a region which is wonderful and everything, but I was looking at the, the census data for just Temecula. So not Marietta, um, not Wildemar, not Elsinore, um, not Menifee, just, just Temecula. And this is what the census data said. There's somewhere between 48,059, or sorry, yeah, 48 and 49,000 Christians in Temecula. So professing Christians, that's a lot. That's awesome. Praise God. There's still, we need more. <laughs> There's still a lot of people that don't know Jesus. So between 48,000 and 49,000 Christians just in Temecula, in the city limits. So let's just say, for the sake of whatever, like let's just go on the low, the low side, 48,000. Um, I ran the, uh, the numbers, what's the income per capita? So income per capita basically means every single person, what's the average that they would income, right? Whether it's a child or an adult. Most children aren't <laughs> contributing really anything financially to households, which is fine, they shouldn't. Um, but for the sake of the way that the census runs their data, is they basically go, you know, they take the the averages and they spread it out for every man, woman, and child. So that's the income per capita, okay? Income per capita is $33,000 per person per year. Why do I share that with you? If, if the Christians in Temecula, if they tithed, and right now, I just lost some of you because you're like, hey, Tom, tithing, I don't want to talk about it. Tithe just means tenth. A tenth, that's what it means. If, if just Christians in the city of Temecula tithed, that would be $158.4 million per year. Just consider for a second how much money that is. Like, 
wild amounts of money. $158.4 million every year. Here's my question. What would this city look like if Jesus was the Lord of our wallets? What could it look like? Um, I don't want to spend too much time here because this isn't the thrust of the message, but I think it's important. I think contextualizing this is important. People want to argue about tithing and be religious about it all day long, okay? What you need to know is it's biblical. Here's what I mean. It was pre-law before Abraham. Tithing, this, this, this biblical concept that God would say, hey, give me 10%, give me a tenth. Entrust the resources I've given to you, entrust it to me and watch what I do with it, okay? So he has purpose in it. It existed pre-law with Abraham, obviously law with Abraham, and post-law, new covenant with Jesus. In Matthew chapter 23, actually verse 23, you can look at this later, the, the Pharisees, the religious people, the hypocrites, Jesus confronts them and he's like, dude, you guys tithe, but you neglect the poor. You neglect social justice. You sh-, and he still says, you should tithe. You should give a tenth, but you shouldn't neglect this. Here's what I'm, what I'm saying. Jesus calls us to more. He calls us to much more than that. He says, don't, he goes both ways. Don't just give a tenth and not care about the poor. And don't just care about the poor and not give God the tenth. He goes, you should do this. So the reason I bring that up is like, it's G- don't get mad at me. Like if, if this is a thing that bothers you, this is the words of Jesus. If, if it's the sort of thing like, hey Tom, you're, you're just trying to like boost the church's budget. You, you just want money. Don't give it here. Straight up. You don't have to give it here. I want you to obey Jesus. This is about, this is about the people of God and Jesus and the what if. What if Jesus was the Lord of our wallets? What if we didn't interrupt God's work in every area of life? What if we actually were involved in it? Because think about this. Can we just dream? Can you just dream with me? Can you just dream with me? What would this city look like? $158.4 million just in this city. Dude, no one would be in need. Government aside, you know, the government would come to us. And you know what we could do? We could do crazy things. No one would be in need. No one would be in debt. There'd be like medical bills taken care of. Housing taken care of. Food taken care of. Clothing taken care of. College taken care of. Imagine with me. Dude, people would move here from all over the world. Those, those, those crazy Jesus people in Temecula. I don't, I don't really get Jesus. I don't necessarily agree with Jesus, but I want to go live in that city because those people are so radically generous and no one's in need. And they don't do it begrudgingly. They do it because they have this love for Jesus. Like, imagine with me, what would it be like? And just, again, this is, okay, let's, our city's important. It's amazing. I love our city. I love, I love this region. What about outside of our city? What if we said, okay, $58.4 million? Is that a lot of money? We could do some amazing things with that kind of money. Let's set that aside. Let's say we go $58.4 million to all the needs in the community. We have $100 million left over. Every year. How many churches could we plant with that money? Our church, 
was built on the generosity of people most of you have never met. This church started with $80,000. People got, got together, sacrificially gave 80, above and beyond their tithe, right? So the, the Jesus, don't, give, don't just give a tenth, like there's other things too. He calls us to more. So people above and beyond give. This church started with $80,000. Let's just do the math. We have $100 million every year left over from our, you know, the 158.4. $100 million every year to plant churches. 1,250 churches every year. We can be involved or we can interrupt. Why do I say this to you? If you're feeling guilty, stop. Stop. This is not about giving you a guilt trip. This is about casting vision. Not just for your wallet, but for your entire life. Guys, you need to know how much you matter. God has given you life. He's blessed you life. He's gifted you life in this place, in this season. He's uniquely created you with with gifts and strengths. He has... There's so much untapped potential, not just in this city, but in this room. I look around, I see so many generous people, so many radically gifted people, so many, so many talents, so many things that could be leveraged for the kingdom of God. And so many of you are leveraging them in radically sacrificial, beautiful ways. So don't feel guilty and don't feel prideful, okay? But here's what I want you to know. You really matter. You have an important role to play. And here's the thing, I didn't, I didn't cast anybody, he did. He casted you, you have a purpose, he has a plan for your life. And guys, listen, this is the vision for the Christian life. Like, this is the vision. And if you're in Christ, you're already, your heart's burning for this. You're hearing me talk, your heart burns for this. To see God's kingdom come in every single area of life. Not just in my life, but in every other person's life. Why? Because Jesus is so glorious, He's so glorious and he's so worth it. So Jesus, he, he calls the chief priests and the Pharisees here. He refers to them as hypocrites. I don't want to be like them. I do not want to be like these people who complain about what others do wrong or who complain about what others don't do right and all the while interrupting God's work of redeeming all things. If you're anything like me, it's so easy to be critical of other people. Dude, they're not doing it. They're not doing it. They're interrupting God's work while I'm interrupting God's work. I don't want that. I don't want that for me. I don't want that for you. Because here's the thing. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe. Exactly. If we let him go on like this through us, if we don't interrupt his work, everyone will believe. Is that not the cry of your heart? Does that not make, does that something inside of you not just come alive at everyone believing, not just acknowledging as true, but is fully submitted to Jesus. I don't want to be a hypocrite who interrupts God. Um, okay, moving on. These, these hypocrites, these, these Jewish leaders, they want to stop Jesus. They want to interrupt him, right? Because they don't want things taken away. Did you catch that? Look back at verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation, okay? So, quickly, Jews, 
excuse me, were under Roman rule, right? Romans, the governing authority here, the power, superpower of the world. And these Jewish leaders, they're submitted to these Roman authorities, all right? So they're thinking, if the Jews, now because all this stuff that Jesus is doing, if the Jews start to rally around a different leader, that's a threat on multiple levels, okay? Uh, Bible commentary, uh, commentator William Barclay says this, quote, if Jesus was the cause of civil disorder, Rome would descend in all her power. And beyond a doubt, the Jewish leaders would be dismissed from their positions of authority. It never even occurred to them to ask whether Jesus was right or wrong. Their only question was this, what effect will this have on our ease and comfort and authority? They judged things, not in the light of principle, but in the light of their own interests. And it is still possible for people to set their own interests before the will of God. So these Jewish leaders, they didn't want their authority and their influence taken away. So their choice was this. The choice was to surrender to Jesus and hand over that authority, that control, or stop him and keep it for themselves. You with me? That's the fork in the road. And guys, that's the dilemma of every human being. Do I hand over authority? Do I hand over control? Do I hand over lordship of of my life? Or do I stop Jesus and keep it for myself? Because here's the thing, guys. Following Jesus, it will cost you something, man. It drives me crazy when people are like, when their evangelistic declaration is something along the lines like, follow Jesus, everything's gonna go great. Like, let's talk about that for a second. Like, <laughs> still in a fallen world where things are jacked up and things aren't the way they're supposed to be, where there's billions of people who are interrupting God's work on a daily basis. Following Jesus will cost you something. In this story, the, the big cost here is this idea of control. Now, here's the thing. When we talk about control, everybody like, don't pretend. I think all of us enjoy the feeling of being in control. It leads to security. It leads to all kinds of things, okay? But here's the thing. Handing over control does not mean handing over choice. You always have a choice. Always, okay? Um, Think about this for a second. Um, A lot of people married in the room. When you get married, uh, let me say this. Before I got married, I stayed out as long as I wanted. After I got married, that stopped happening. Because, frankly, my life is no longer my own. Now, we can giggle about that, but there's beauty in that as well, right? That's the reality. Like, my life is no longer my own. Two now become one. So I'm not staying out as long as I want. I'm not doing things in isolation. I have a partner. So, so marriage, in a sense, cost me control. But I gained a partner. I gained a partner to help me. Because guess what? I need it. I'm pretty blind in some spectacular areas of my life. Dude, just the other day, like a couple weeks ago, I said, I made a comment in my preach that was insensitive. It wasn't okay. I didn't even, didn't even register. And my loving wife goes, hey, like, did you catch that you said this? She's like, it hit me, kind of, it kind of, kind of pricked me a little bit and it probably did other people in the room. Thank God for her. If I didn't have her as my partner, 
if I wasn't willing to let go of control so I could gain a partner that could help me see myself from perspectives that I don't see, I'd, I'd live my life hurting people more than I already do. You guys with me in this? It will cost you control. But what you gain is something so much better. Now listen, these Jewish leaders, they were not willing to part with control. That was paramount in their mind. So following Jesus, hear me say this. Following Jesus will cost you control. Absolutely. But what you gain is so far greater. What you gain is so much greater. What what do you gain? You gain an unshakable faith. You get an unshakable faith because almighty God, creator of everything, is on whose side now? He's on my side. It's amazing. I have this unshakable faith and trust in almighty God who's now for me, not against me, because of Jesus, okay? Following Jesus, it will cost you control, but what you gain is far greater. You gain an unshakable faith. You gain a joy that's not dependent on your circumstances, a joy that's not dependent on your circumstances. Why? Because that almighty God loves you. He loves me, and, and nothing I can do separates me from that love. Nothing. So no matter what the circumstances that are happening in my life, I have this joy of the most important person in all of creation, in all of history, fully devoted to me, enough so that he was willing to give his life for me. He, uh, he loves me. So now nothing can affect, what, what's better than that? Beat that, top that. You, you can't give me anything that's going to top that. And if you take things away from me, I still have the best thing ever. Why? So that I have a joy that no one can take away from me. It does not depend on my circumstances. What else do we gain? We gain a hope that cannot die. It's like a flame that doesn't go out. We gain a hope that can't die. Why? Because Jesus can't die. That means no one can ever steal hope from us. That's why you have these early Christians that are being sawed in half singing hymns while they're doing it being boiled alive, being set on fire as torches, and they do it with joy in their heart. Why? Because he loves me, and nothing can separate me from that love. And I have a hope that can't die because Jesus can't die. What else do we get? What else do we gain from following Jesus? It'll cost us control, but what else do we gain? Um, if you guys have been in a, in a gospel community, you've kind of heard this before, but I think it's important to talk about. We gain freedom from the penalty, power, and presence of sin. Penalty of sin, power of sin, and presence of sin. We get, we get freedom from all three of those. Let me break it down really quickly. We get freedom. Following Jesus results in freedom from the penalty of sin, right? Because sin deserves God's wrath. It's, it's like cosmic treason against the king of the universe. So sin deserves God's wrath. Sin deserves death. Following Jesus because of Jesus, in Jesus, we have freedom from that. We have freedom from that penalty. It's amazing. Jesus is Lord. He offers us forgiveness from that penalty. Are you with me on this? It's beautiful. Freedom from the penalty, freedom from the power. Uh, how many of you like to sin? Every hand should go up. Be Why? Because sin is desirable. Absolutely. It's desirable. Or no one would do it. No one's twisting your arm when you sin. It's desirable. But here's the cool thing. In Christ, in Jesus, when he's my Lord, you know what's more desirable than sin? Pleasing him. I could talk to early about, I'm like examining my life going, my desires are changing over time. It's not overnight, but over time, I'm, di- I'm wanting different things. My desires are transforming. 
So the power of sin, it's a, it's a strong tug. It's like a tractor beam. You know, it's like it pulls you in. That loses its strength because my, my, my desire for sin decreases as my desire to please the one who lived for me and died for me increases. So that power is lost as this power rises. Are you with me? So following Jesus, freedom from the penalty of sin, freedom from the power of sin, and maybe my favorite one, the presence of sin. Like the day is coming when all the brokenness, all the evil, all the sin is gone for good. And we're with him in his presence in a new creation where things are the way they're supposed to be. Not just for 100 years, not just for 1,000 years, not just for 10,000 years, forever. Things the way they're supposed to be. Following Jesus will cost you, man. It will cost you control. But what you gain is exponentially better. Like it's not even a fair deal at all. You guys have heard this famous quote before. It's Jim Elliott. He says this. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Following Jesus will cost you, but what you gain is far greater. And more importantly than freedom from the, you know, the, the penalty and the power and the presence of sin, more importantly than a hope that can't die, more importantly than any of these things, you know what we get? We get him. We get him. We get Jesus, the lover of your soul, the faithful king. Guys, if you see the gospel for what it is, the good news, God came to earth, lived in your place, died in your place, rose again to show his power over sin, Satan, and death, and that if you trust in that, you're reconciled to God. You can actually get those marching orders from the Father and then actually be empowered by the Spirit to actually walk in them. If you believe in the truth of the gospel, if it really sinks in, if you see what the gospel really is, that God himself was willing to leave heaven to come and die, that it, that it cost Jesus everything. He emptied his bank account for you. If you see that, if you see that to him, you were worth it. If you see that, if you believe the truth of the gospel, guess what? You will gladly part with anything. I will give up anything for him. Why? Because he's so worth it. That's what the word worthy means. When we sing, worthy is the lamb, worthy, worthy. It's that he's worth it. That's what worship means. It means to ascribe worth, ultimate worth. Nothing is more paramount than my Jesus. Why? Because he saw, he saw that I was worth everything. It cost him everything. Guys, when you see that, you'll gladly give up anything. So here's my thing. Following Jesus will cost you. But Jesus is so worth it. He's so worth it. Okay, I'll close with this. Ben, you guys want to come up? I'll take my final drink of water. I'm almost done, guys. Thanks for being patient. Okay, so these Jewish leaders, right? Pharisees, chief priests, the Sanhedrin, they did not see Jesus as someone worth following, right? They wanted to kill him. They saw Jesus as a threat. They saw him more like the dentist, right? Not like the, the supreme crazy dentist. No, one, don't, I'm not advocating murder of dentists, okay? You know where I'm going with this. They saw him as a threat. 
They saw that they, they, there was something that was worth more to them that they weren't willing to part with. And Jesus was a threat to that something, okay? So here's what I believe for our church. What does this mean for our church? I really believe that even this morning, God's been highlighting some things to you. He's been bringing things to your mind. It's the spirit of God. They're bubbling up. And you're questioning, oh, is that really him or is that something else? God's bringing things to mind. Things are bubbling up, okay? That if you're unwilling to let go of them, it's gonna hurt you. You're gonna miss out. He's bubbling things that you know you're like holding too tightly on, right? For the Jewish leaders, it was control. They had authority, they had influence. They were not about to surrender to the Messiah and lose that. Jesus wasn't worth it to them. Is there anything for you? Like, let the Spirit bring things to your mind. He wants to free you. What is it for you? It's keeping you from Jesus. Because here's the cool thing. Jesus is so gracious, gracious and merciful. He's consistently inviting us to follow him. Every time I fail him, every time I, like, I, I, I mess up, you know, you know what his response is? It's not, God, you did it again, Tom. It's, hey, come follow me. Come on. I took care of that with my body and my blood. It's handled. Let's do something different. Come follow me. But here's the thing. He's always inviting us to follow him. Absolutely. But do you know what that requires? It requires us handing over the lordship of our life to him. But keep something in mind. This is the Lord who lays down his life. So you're not handing your life over to some Lord who's going to tyrant. He's like a tyrant and is going to like hurt you. This is the Lord who says, hey, I willingly died for you because I'm just, I love you so much. Do you want to follow me? It means you got to let go of control. He demonstrates your worth to him by giving his blood. So maybe that's for you. Maybe God's highlighting something in your life that he wants you to let go of. For others, maybe there's areas in your life, instead of being involved in what God's doing, you know you're interrupting it. Instead of being involved in God ushering in his kingdom everywhere, his way, everywhere, you can see it. You're like, yep, I'm not participating in that, therefore I'm interrupting it. Again, Jesus' invitation, the same one. Follow me. Not how dare you, how could you. I'm so disappointed in you. That's not the father. But hey, follow me. Let's start fresh. I paid for it. He invites us to join him in his work. And guys, dream with me. You can call me a dreamer. Or what does John Lennon say? Like, I'm not the only one. Like, dream with me. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe. If we stop interrupting and we get involved, the mission of God will advance. His kingdom will come in spectacular ways, friends. Amazing ways. People will be saved. We'll baptize every single one of these kids. Heaven's going to invade earth, man. If we let him go on like this, through us, everyone will believe. I can't speak for you. I can speak for me. I can't speak for my family, and I can speak for this church. That's where we're going. And I want to invite you. We're not going to be perfect. We're going to make mistakes along the way, absolutely. 
but we want Jesus to be the Lord of every single area of our life. Jesus is the series, right? He's worth following, man. He's worth following. Will you stand with me? I want to pray for us. Just going to listen for a bit and see if the Spirit wants to highlight anything else specific for this morning. I feel like some of us are like uh, restless. Uh, it's like beyond discomfort. It's like you're, you're restless. And I feel like God wants to provide you rest as you examine the reality of the gospel for you. Um, Andrea said it this morning before we got started that, that she felt like God wanted to be with you this morning. Like, and she started calling people by name. I feel like that was a prophetic moment. I think God wants to be with you this morning. He wants to free you from the restlessness of your soul and replace it. Replace unbelief with belief. Replace interrupting with involvement. And let's just watch and see what he does. So Father, we just surrender to you every heart in this room. Pray that you'd pour out your grace on us, that it would empower us to be forgiven men and women who see every single moment of our life as an opportunity to be involved in the work of redemption. And that whenever we recognize, Spirit, would you give us eyes to see? Would you give us eyes to see the areas that we're interrupting so that we can just say, nope, don't want to do that anymore. We can repent. We can stop and do something different. We can surrender again to your Lordship and bask in your grace and your forgiveness and your mercy that covers us over and over and over again. So Jesus, would you make us a church? Would you make us a community of people who think big picture? but who also thinks small picture every moment of the day. Intentionality. What does it look like for Jesus to be the Lord of this area of my life? What am, what am, I, what am I putting above him? What, what, am I, what am I saying? I gotta have this and I'm gonna stiff arm Jesus. Like what are the idols of our hearts? Spirit, would you, would you show us those things so that we can let go of them and grab hold of the most beautiful, most glorious, most wonderful, most amazing thing ever. And that's you, Jesus. We get you. Thank you that you made yourself available to us. And you do every single moment. We love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.